The following is a production of Government CIO Media. Hello and welcome to GovCast. My name is Amanda Ziede, your host and reporter with Government CIO Media. Today I'm joined by Cezanne Palmer, Mission Area Executive for National Health for the Johns Hopkins University Applied Physics Lab. Thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm really excited to be here and I look forward to our conversation. Before we get into what exactly it is you're doing at the Applied Physics Lab, I want to talk a little bit about how you got there. I read on your LinkedIn that you received a bachelor's in electrical engineering from the University of Maryland and also a master's from Johns Hopkins in electrical engineering. I wanted to start by asking if going to college for electrical engineering, was that the goal always to help solve these complex healthcare issues with engineering? Was it always a particular passion area for you? It wasn't at all. When I first went to college and decided to major in electrical engineering, I really had no idea what I wanted to do. I just knew that I really liked math and science. And so as, you know, advisors and parents and others were trying to guide me, they steered me toward electrical engineering. And I was like, okay, sure, you know, that sounds good. And then probably about halfway through college, I really enjoyed my signal processing classes. And so again, you have to remember this was in like the 90s. I was really excited to be part of the cell phone industry. That's what I thought I was going to do um, for my career. And then I actually got an internship at the Naval Research Lab. So I like applied to a bunch of places because I was really nervous about making sure I had a job when I graduated. And the Naval Research Lab was like the first one to reach out. And so I ended up doing an internship there where I started getting more involved in Navy work. And then from there, I decided that I really wanted a career focused on government service and helping to improve national security and things like that. And then I ended up at the Central Intelligence Agency doing analysis, and I loved that job. So it was sort of like I meandered my way into where I ended up spending actually most of my career, which was working for the Navy in uh, submarine warfare and anti-submarine warfare. It was a long, circuitous path to get to where I am now, which is healthcare, and it sort of happened just as a result of various decisions along the way, none of which, maybe it's bad to say, but none of which were really with the intention of ending up where I am. But now that I'm here, it's really exciting. So, Was there a particular moment that you remember feeling a call to public service to work with government? I think it was sort of part of my upbringing. My parents um, were immigrants from Cyprus. And just growing up, you know, they always talked about how great this country was and all the things that they appreciated about this country and things like that. And I think just over the course of my formative years, I became very patriotic and wanted to do stuff to support our country. That's cool. I relate to that. My parents are immigrants as well, and I grew up with the same mentality. So when you were interning at the Navy Research Lab, Was this before you went back to get your master's? Yeah. So this was, I was still, I think I was like a sophomore maybe in college. And yeah, I was doing acoustic signal processing. So NRL is more of like a basic research organization. So we would have C-test data and come back and do analysis on that data. And so that's what I was doing. So I was basically writing code and processing data and looking to gain insights into how sound propagated through the ocean and what some of the factors were that impacted how the sound propagates. You were like, I need more of this, so I need a master's in the same thing. <laughs> no, actually, I really did not like that job. 
<laughs> so I was freaking out at that point because I was like, oh, my God, I'm getting this degree and I like actually hate doing this work, <laughs> which is why I actually ended up applying to CIA. Like, I again, I applied like lots of places, but then they finally got around to calling me back. And then when I went there, you know, it was super cool and exciting to even be able to work there, which was, you know, the draw at that time. But when I got there, the work was actually analysis. And I found that I really liked that. So it was kind of like leveraging what I knew in terms of my technical background and degree, but applying it to bigger picture kinds of problems and trying to get insights by analysis. And I found that that was something I really enjoyed. What was the climate like when you were at the CIA? What were you, can you say what you were working on or what kinds of analysis you were doing? So I was looking at naval systems. That's probably um, what I can say. The environment, it was interesting because at first, of course, like, you know, you walk in and you're like, oh, my God, I'm at the CIA, you know. Mm -hmm. But after a few months, it's sort of like a job. But it was great. I mean, everybody was wonderful. It was a great organization. And I really enjoyed it. It was also at the time when they were sort of coming out from behind the shadows. And so it was okay to say that you worked at Mm -hmm. CIA and stuff like that. It was cool. It was a great experience. I learned a ton. And I worked with some great people. And it was just, you know, after a few years, I thought, okay, I don't want to, you know, I was only like 25 or something. And I thought, "Eh, I'm not sure I want to be like in intelligence the rest of my life. So I thought, "Eh, maybe I'll try something else. And then that's when I had actually been working with some people at the Applied Physics Laboratory. And they were like, hey, why don't you come check out what we do? So your first role back at Hopkins was with the Submarine warfare. So what I focused on, you know, again, like given my background and experience, it was looking at sensor systems. And so that was um, one of the first projects I worked on was that our platforms had sufficient capability to see what's going on around them when they're under the water. Were you able to see any of the work you were doing working in real time? We actually do studies, but then we also build systems and we deploy systems and then we go out to sea and test systems. So you actually do get to see the impact of the work that you're doing. And you've been at APL since? Yep. 18 and a half years. Crazy. How did that role evolve to your current position working on the health end? My first about 13 years at the lab, I was working with the Navy in the areas that we just talked about. And then again, like I got to a point in my career where I felt like, wow, I've been doing this a long time. It was really rewarding. And I had the great fortune of developing some really awesome relationships with the Navy, you know, and with others in the community. I didn't really want to leave, but at the same time, I wanted to try something different. Fortunately, APL does a lot of work across a broad spectrum of missions. So I was able to kind of dip my foot in the pool in another area of APL as opposed to like having to leave and go somewhere else. So I ended up shifting over to our research area and running some of our programs focused on robotics and autonomy. It turned out to be a relatively short duration focused in that area because shortly thereafter, the laboratory made this strategic decision to take what were kind of opportunistic projects in health and medicine, you know, as a result of our relationship with Johns Hopkins, there were a number of collaborations across the lab in this area, but it wasn't like a strategic thrust for the organization. But a few years ago, the decision was made to kind of take a more focused approach and pull together various activities that had been going on around the lab 
lab and stand up a full business unit focused on health. And so at that time, I shifted over from what I was doing on the research side to lead our work on the health side. And what we're trying to do there, basically bring an engineering perspective to health and medicine. And so that's where having the background of being an engineer and working in an engineering organization, it's sort of taking a different approach than has traditionally been taken in this field. Can you talk a little bit about your focus right now and what you're working on and how you're using that engineering perspective? So the way I think about it is in two broad areas. One is understanding health determinants. You know, what is it about our biology, the environment, you know, socioeconomic factors? Like, what are the things that actually influence our health? That's one focus. And then the other one is, okay, you know, now you understand a little bit more about what those factors are. How do we leverage that understanding to deliver better, more effective, and more efficient care once you do get sick? So those are like the two big areas that we focus on. And in both of them, we take a very systems or systems engineering approach. So we don't start Like in academia, you traditionally start with a hypothesis, right? What is the question I want to answer? And then you go down a path of exploration and research to try to get an answer to that question. We tend to start with what is the problem I'm trying to solve? And so those might sound similar, but they actually lead to very different approaches and ways of thinking about the problem. And so it's, you know, a combination of the approach and this systems engineering approach to problems, but also then leveraging, you know, people with deep expertise in things like sensor systems and signal processing and data analytics and modeling and simulation, you know, so bringing those kinds of capabilities to bear on those types of problems. Problems. Is there a particular problem that you're working on right now? There are many. <laughs> One of the ones that I think is really cool is there's so much data available today, and it's exponentially increasing, just the, the volume of data, but also the different kinds of data, orthogonal data sets. And so what we're trying to do is look across all of those disparate data sets and get better insights into how we can take large populations of people with certain disease groups and break them up into finer and finer subpopulations that are more homogeneous. So, you know, if you say diabetes, right, there are lots of factors and there are lots of people who have diabetes and their prognosis and progression over time, as well as their response to different kinds of treatment options or medications might be varied. But if we can figure out why it is that certain subgroups respond a certain way or progress a certain way, and we can identify those characteristics and group them, then, you know, when new patient X comes in and you make some measurements about this patient, you can compare it to those subgroups and say, hey, you're most like this subgroup. Therefore, you know, these are the things we should focus on or these are the things that, you know, need to be addressed most urgently. It's a really exciting project. You know, of course, it's a great honor to be partnered with Johns Hopkins Medicine in this space. So we have a lot of fun working on this and are excited about the possibilities in terms of how this can help improve patient care. And I may just be thinking of engineering in its traditional sense, but how is it applied in this kind of research? Sensor development is a big thing that we do and expertise that we have. So for example, something that's important to lots of people in health, but particularly the military, is 
neurological health, TBI, post-traumatic stress disorder, those kinds of things, right? They're a big deal in the military. And despite millions and millions, probably billions of dollars being invested into understanding some of the causes and treatments and all those things, there's a lot we don't know. So one of the things that we're trying to do is look at whether developing new sensors that can make different types of measurements of what's going on in the brain might be able to help. And so we've developed an optics-based system that's non-invasive, but we're already measuring different signals that nobody's ever seen before. Mm-hmm. And so we're trying to understand what are these signals? What do they mean? You know, and can we correlate them to activity that will give us more insight into what's going on in the brain? And then, of course, as we talked about, the data analytics is huge. There's just so much out there. And as an organization and some of the other mission areas that we work, we've done extensive work for decades in data analytics over large and disparate data sets. And so leveraging that expertise and applying it now to health and medical data, uh, you know, we believe is going to help glean new insights that will be valuable for patient care. Yeah, and it seems like the further reaching implications of these sensors that you're building can go much further than what their current use case is for. Yeah, 10 plus Mm -hmm. year out vision is that people don't have to go to the hospital anymore or don't have to leave their home to either find out if there's anything wrong with them or what's wrong with them or what they should do about it. So this idea of accessible, affordable care anytime, anywhere, like that's sort of what we talk about. And the way we envision it is get up in the morning and you go brush your teeth and, you know, whether it's the mirror or the toothbrush or, you know, just these things that you interact with daily are all sensorized to give you insights into your health. I mean, we already see it with the Apple Watch and Fitbits, right? So there's all kinds of data that is currently being collected that is being used to help inform your health. You can even do an echocardiogram, you know, using an app right on the watch. So there's all sorts of things that are already available today. So to think about where that's going and the possibilities in the future is really exciting. We think that sort of engineered vision of the future of health makes a lot of sense and is something that we should be striving for. So I know APL works with agencies, the DOD, the intelligence community, NASA. Do they bring a problem set that they need help with to APL? And is that how the partnership works? Yeah, that's a great question. So it works a few ways. So one is definitely as a university-affiliated research center is to be there as a resource to the government and to be able to provide them that trusted objective guidance and support. And so sometimes they say, hey, we have this really big problem and we need help with it. And then, you know, we will come in and bring the right people together to try to address those problems. The other thing that we're supposed to be doing, and I think we do a pretty good job of, is be kind of a strategic partner and help help guide even some of the thought process in terms of where things might be going. So even if they haven't said this is a particular problem, if we can anticipate that, you know, there might be a problem or that there's some new capability or technology or potential capability that could be developed to maybe come at the problem from a different way or anticipate, you know, a problem differently. That's also another way. So it's sort of like we're certainly responsive to questions and problems that come to us, but then we also try to look ahead to the possibilities based on our technical expertise and then bring those back to our government sponsors and say, hey, you might want to think about this. 
I wanted to ask if there's any kinds of, through your long educational and professional career in STEM, any cultural, technological, bureaucratic challenges that you faced along the way that you're still facing or you had to overcome? I guess I would say certainly being a young woman working in the submarine world. Again, this was back before women were allowed on submarines. That's something that... Oh, wow. Yeah. So it's been maybe in the last 10 years that has changed. That. Yeah. So so now women can serve on submarines. But back when I started working in this space, they could not. I was usually the only or maybe one of two women in a room full of men who had either, you know, served aboard submarines or, you know, certainly had some connection with the Navy. So that was, it it was interesting because it's not something that, like, I noticed right away. As an electrical engineering student in college in the 90s, it's not like there were that many women in my classes either. So it was kind of normal. But it was funny because, like, somewhere 10, 15 years into my career, somebody said, wow, you know, it's interesting. Like, when I saw you in these meetings, I wasn't really sure what you, you know, might have to contribute. But I've learned over time that, you know, even if you didn't serve on a submarine, you can add value. And I was like, oh, wow, I'm not sure if that's like a compliment or what. But that was interesting. But I think just ignoring it, kind of putting it to the side and moving forward, like I just tried not to be distracted by that. I was like, I'm going to do a good job and I'm going to just not worry about it. And over time, I think like, you know, once you demonstrate your value, then other people ignore it too. But I think that was probably one of the situations where you kind of feel a little bit like a fish out of water. But it was short-lived. Once that was behind me, I can't really think of any other situations that like have continued or anything like that. I think it's, especially this day and age, there's a lot of women working in STEM fields now. And so it's not quite as different. It's crazy, though, that you were allowed to work on submarines, but not be on them. (laughs) Right. Like we could be on them as like the scientists. So if we were working on a system, you know, they'd have to get all these special exceptions and things like that so that we could actually go on board to do whatever we needed to do. But when Women couldn't serve on submarines. And I mean, it's sort of, well, I won't get into all the the details, but (laughs) there were some reasons that you thought, eh, okay, I guess that kind of makes sense. I mean, you have to like share beds, like hot bunking, and you know, you're in these close quarters and it's not like they have dozens of restrooms and things like that. So, you know, you could kind of see from a practical standpoint why it would have been hard, but if it's important, you can make it happen. And they did. Yeah, I wasn't even aware that that was only of 10 years ago. Crazy to think about. Right. Because <laughs> no, no one talks about that. No one, no one talks about the gender gap on submarines. I've right. never heard of that discussion. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Thank you for enlightening us. That's something I want to look into right now. Right. My sister was um, an electrical engineer at Maryland as well, and she would talk about some of the disparities in the classroom. And so it's crazy to think it still goes on. But it's good to hear that from your perspective, things have changed over the years. If anything, I kind of see like way more focus now on on girls and women in STEM and it's like everywhere you look that's all really positive but you know when I see like younger people coming into the workforce now it does seem pretty balanced that's really positive and a good sign yeah I wonder what these men on these submarines uh, I wonder if they knew that the people keeping them alive <laughs> while they're <laughs> under there you know at the leadership levels they were always super supportive like mm-hmm. I never had one of those like horror stories where somebody didn't want me to work on something because right. I was a woman you know or anything like that it was more just sort of like oh this is weird the way it was <laughs> right so how has the evolution of technology throughout your lifetime and career changed in your line of work 
to me, like the biggest change, and it's, I feel like a dinosaur when I say things like this, but when I was starting off, computer scientists were like people who worked on computers and electrical engineers were people who wrote code to run on computers. These fields focused on data analytics and artificial intelligence and robotics, you know, those were all things that evolved over the last couple decades. I mean, sure, that research and that focus was going on in pockets, but it wasn't to the extent that it is today. And um, it wasn't so broad and far reaching. So the fact that we have, again, so much more computing capability, so much more data, and just the fact that we now understand so much more about what things computers do well versus what things humans do well, we're able to better utilize that technology and bring it to bear to add things like human-like capabilities to platforms whether they're human-like platforms or not, as well as develop algorithms that can help humans. I know part of the discussion when we talk about AI and, and its role in life, you know, there's always this discussion about it taking people's jobs and, you know, changing everything. It, you can identify some jobs where that may happen down the road. But I think the much more near-term and realistic thing is that it's going to help people do their jobs better, more effectively, more efficiently. And so, you know, when we talk about AI and healthcare, I think of it almost like decision support. So like you have clinicians and you have researchers and they're struggling to look at multidimensional data sets. I mean, they're huge. And so what we as humans can process in our heads or even in spreadsheets, you know, is going to be limiting. And so to the extent that we can leverage this technology and help it inform our decision making, I just see lots of positive results from that. At our CXO Tech Forum, AI and Big Data, you spoke on the health panel, and I remember you talked about using certain algorithms that were trained for a particular data set can be rearranged to work on a different data set. So you're not reinventing all these algorithms, you're able to use them in different ways. Is that helping solve problems that you didn't think could be solved right away? So we are working on that. Whether we can do it and Mm -hmm. how quickly we can do it, I think is still a little bit TBD. I mean, we've done a little bit of proof of concept, but especially in healthcare where there's so much variability and biology is hard. It's not like a system that you built that you can kind of test and repeat and get to that point, right? Biology is, is very different. There is some speculation that you can develop like a one size fits all tool. I don't think that's going to be possible anytime soon. But when you get to kind of a little bit finer resolution, one of the areas that we've started focusing on is natural language processing. There's so much either handwritten notes or just uh, freeform text in electronic health records. It's hard to glean the useful data out of that unstructured form and use it and combine it with other data sets to get new insights. And so the application of natural language processing to doing that is one way that we've approached that problem. And we successfully demonstrated it for one disease type that looks for certain factors. And then the question was, okay, how easily can you adapt this thing that we developed to look for totally different things? And so that's what I was talking about briefly with, you know, prostate cancer and multiple sclerosis. And so we've gotten to a point now where we were, with little effort, able to have it now focus on a different set of parameters and data values that it was looking for. And now we're trying to go even a step further where if I'm a researcher kind of in any area, 
I can go in and say, okay, you know, I want to apply this tool to my data set and I say these are the things I'm looking for and it can pull out that data as opposed to requiring a long development timeline. So that's one example. You know, of course, like I said, the kind of the holy grail that we want, getting back to this idea of identifying finer and finer subpopulations of patients that are homogeneous in terms of their characteristics, we'd love to be able to develop an algorithm that can do that across disease types as opposed to being very highly tuned and specific to each disease. How generalizable it'll be and, you know, how effectively it'll work across all those different data sets, a big TBD there. But that's what we're working toward. In your 18 years at APL, what has been the coolest problem set you've been able to work on? Uh, The first thing that comes to mind is Define what you mean by work on, (laughs) because I, you know, I spent the first several years like very much, you know, hands on working on actual programming or building models or Mm -hmm. running models. But then the last decade or so has been more kind of in leading and guiding and overseeing. So if you count all of that (laughs) as work on, I have to say that I think the coolest thing has been this non-invasive optical imaging sensor that I mentioned. And I think the reason I think it's so cool is because there's so much information about the brain that we just don't know. The idea that we could have a way to get so much more insight into what's going on with a very portable, low-cost capability you could kind of see it as a future where mm-hmm. it's very ubiquitous and you can have it, you know, the, the thing that I say, and the scientists actually working on this would probably say, don't say that, you know, we're not sure if we're ever going to get there. But I'm like, how cool would it be if you had this thing like on the sidelines of a football game, right? Mm-hmm. And every time somebody has some sort of bad tackle or whatever, you just do a quick scan and you say, nope, you're good to go. Or uh, no, the, you know, there's something wrong here. We need to take you out of the game. You know, those kinds of things I just see as potential game-changing in so many aspects of both everyday life all the way through, you know, disease states where it would be wonderful to be able to monitor what's going on every day as opposed to, you know, going into an MRI machine for an hour where you can't move and you get this scan taken, but that's not something you can repeat on a daily basis or anything like that. So, you know, this idea of creating new ways to glean new insights into what's going on in the brain is really exciting to me. These sensors aren't something you put on your body. It's it's a scan. So think of it almost like a cap. So okay, it is gotcha. like it would go on your head, but it doesn't go in your head. <laughs> I was thinking like Black Mirror where you touch your temples and you can see. Yeah, that would it's be really cool too. <laughs> <laughs> so kind of along those lines, in 10, 20 years, you mentioned the goal is so that patients no longer have to go to a medical facility to receive great care. If you had a magic wand, is that the one thing right now you could just fix in healthcare with the technologies, the full potential of the technologies available or the ones you've seen coming in the future? I would back up and say before they're a patient, you know, so just every day, like right now, I'd like to know, like, do I have tiny microscopic like tumor Mm -hmm. starting somewhere or am I showing signs that in three or four days I might be coming down with a cold? Things like that where it's almost like seamless between being healthy and being sick, but just sort of having a lot more insight into what's going on all the time. And then knowing like, okay, now there's something wrong and I need to do something. And what I need to do might be something I can do outside of a care environment. It might be that I need surgery. And 
eh, you know, surgery in your house might be more than 10 years out. I don't know. <laughs> you might still have to go to a hospital for that. You know, but but like knowing like, OK, now it's time to go to the doctor as mm-hmm. opposed to, eh, you know, I don't feel so good. Let me do some Google searches and see what's going on and whether I want to take off work today to go to the doctor only to find out like. Kind of like when you take your car into the shop, you know, like, oh, it seems like everything's okay. Let me know if anything gets worse. You know? mm-hmm. So just kind of getting to a point where we have more precise insight into our health and more precise knowledge about what actions to take as a result, I think is what I would say. And then, you know, yeah, you're still going to have to probably go to the doctor to have surgery or to have certain you know, mm-hmm. procedures done. That's probably like maybe another 20 you years. Try- <laughs> These are really incredible game changing technologies and capabilities, the research that you're doing at APL. So I wanted to close by asking for those STEM students who want to make these kinds of differences, even though you don't see them all the time. Normal citizens in the world don't know exactly the type of work you're doing until we're able to experience them ourselves. What advice do you have for them to continue this path and work towards these game-changing, life-changing solutions? I think the biggest thing that I've learned over time is perseverance and resilience are like the most important things. Think about like what excites you? What are the things that you're really passionate about? And then look for those opportunities and don't quit. Like don't let, oh, you know, kind of like me going to the Naval Research Lab and going, oh, God, I'm not sure this is what I wanted to do. You know, I didn't say, oh, my gosh, I need to change my major and go be a dolphin trainer or something. You know, I don't know. Um, It was like, okay, well, that didn't work out so well. Let me try something else. Right. And so just kind of stick with it. Don't be quick to throw in the towel. And if you find yourself, you know, in a meeting as the only whatever it is, you know, female, male, (laughs) blonde, whatever, don't worry about it. Just keep going and keep, you know, pushing toward your dreams and what you want to do. And that would be my advice. Do you see yourself staying in APL for the foreseeable future? I do. I've been there so long. When I started at the lab, I literally said, eh, I'm going to be here for a year or two until I figure out what I really want to do. That's literally what I said to like everybody. A couple years went by and a couple more went by. And before I knew it, it was like, oh, my God, I've been here 10 years. And now it's like, oh, my God, I've been here 18 years. Well, (laughs) Well, you know, there's like I said, there's just so much work of very different natures. I mean, we we send spacecraft right to the sun and to Pluto and we do health and we do, you know, all kinds of other things. So it's enough to keep at least my interest. So I think unless there's some like huge change or something in the Mm. future, I imagine that I will be there for a little while longer. Well, thank you for the work that you're doing at APL and also for joining me today. It was an awesome conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. This is wonderful, and I appreciate the opportunity. This week's episode is supported by Lumina. Lumina's mission is to use AI systems to protect the world. To learn more about Lumina, visit its website at luminaanalytics.com. What an insightful and truly educational conversation with Sezen. It's not every day you get to learn about the problem sets and projects that scientists and researchers are working on in the physics laboratory. The optical sensors being developed to read neurotransmitters and learn more about what goes on in the brain is really fascinating and have so many real-world implications. I hope to see that technology one day, like Sezen said, on the side of a football field. 
And her journey to APL and in APL was so motivating. The fact that she worked on submarine warfare, making sure they were safe enough during a time that women weren't even allowed to be on submarines is really amazing. Her perspectives and stories were eye-opening and the work she's doing is truly changing lives. So thank you all for joining us today on GovCast. Make sure to subscribe and follow us on Twitter at GCIO Media. I'm your host, Amanda Ziede. See you next time. GovCast is a production of Government CIO Media. It's produced and edited by Rob Ford. Our theme music is provided by Big Hoax. Our executive producer is Michael Hoffman. If you're interested in sponsoring GovCast, you can email Andy Andrews at randrews at governmentcio.com. Andrews at